This is the One Accord Podcast, and today we are talking about the doctrine of total depravity. If you're familiar with the acronym TULIP, that is the T in the TULIP. Some theologians actually call this radical depravity instead of total depravity. So I guess maybe it's the R in RULIP, but that doesn't really have the same ring to it. But in order to talk about this important doctrine, whether you call it total depravity or radical depravity or something else is the team that uh, is always here. So let's go and bring them in in reverse order this time, since we always kind of fall into that pattern. Pastor Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, feeling good today, and um, anxious to, uh, to tackle this subject. What uh, What makes you anxious about it? That's that's your word. You're just chomping at the bit, or, or something in particular. Well, I use anxious in a good way. Um, I'm using it in a good way now. Uh, just, I just, um, I think it's it's important. So many other subjects hinge on this one, and um, I'm just excited. To, excited is maybe a better word. Excited to explore it with you guys. See what you guys think. Get your um, get your views and um, try and try and get at the truth of all this. Well, amen. Well, I wasn't critiquing your word choice, but uh, thank you for uh, for clarifying. <laughs> so uh, I am also eager to get into it, and I, I think that uh, you're right. This is uh, in some ways it's kind of the linchpin for the whole thing. Like it, it, how we understand this doctrine really does affect uh, the rest of the uh, ulip. So uh, anyway, we'll get into it. Uh, uh, but uh, let's bring in our resident optimist, Brother Greg. Brother Greg, how are you today? I'm doing great. Looking forward to another round of getting beaten up by a couple of Arminians. And so let's uh, let's let's do it. Ring the With bell. The name calling. I definitely for sure have <laughs> never taken the title of Arminian before. No, but, uh, I'm just but, all right. I've, I've been called worse, so I'll take it. Uh, do you, just, you feel like you're be, like you've been getting beat up, though, for real? No, no, I'm good. I listen. My pastime is is choking my friends in jujitsu so i enjoy getting beat up so do you uh this is why you probably encourage me to do this you want to choke me out sometime don't you isn't that what i would i would love to (laughs) (laughs) see see if you could actually get my head to pop right off almost nothing would give me greater pleasure yeah uh well maybe one of these times we'll uh we'll we'll do that but um uh well i hope that uh, you guys are edified by these conversations i know that i have and i i was talking with somebody not too long ago you know sometimes we have conversations where we're basically in full agreement. Uh, of course, other, some of our other conversations have been um, a little bit more uh, friction, maybe, I guess, uh, is, a, is a way to describe it, a little tense. Um, but uh, it's only because of the, the passion. But I come away from those ones where certainly where at least my, my current way of thinking is challenged and listening to what you guys say, especially if you see it very differently than I do. Um, I still think about that a lot more. If we, if we have a conversation where we just agree on everything and I, we, we end this meeting, I, I barely even think about it afterwards because I didn't really learn anything. Or I didn't have to think about anything differently. So um, anyway, I, uh, I sometimes well, I, I also feel a little beat up, but I, I hope that uh, I hope that it's a positive thing. I know I know jujitsu is a positive thing. So yeah. keeping the analogy, hopefully it's uh, also a, a positive stimulation for you. Yeah, well, I guess I'd like to make a point on that. And, and I was hoping to make this point sometime in the conversation. And perhaps since you bring it up, now's a good time. Um, yeah, some of our conversations have been um, less cohesive than others. And uh but one thing that I do want to say is that throughout this process, um, it has definitely been eye-opening for me. Um, what I'm finding is that perhaps in the past, I haven't read read the positions carefully enough, right? Like we, we read something that we generally agree with and we go, yep, 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 I, I agree with that. Um, but, and I think it's going to come out in this conversation today. It came out when we were talking about uh, the perseverance of the saints, how, how I joyfully said that, uh, yeah, I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but I believe in it, how I define it. Um, 
I'm probably going to have the, the same thing today with total depravity. I've, I've, and I've sent it to you guys and we'll look at it. Um, but many of the ways that this doctrine has been expressed in the past, I'm going to take issue with. Um, but at the same time, again, I, I don't want to divorce myself from reformed, if you want to call it evangelical traditions, you know, that, um, there are, there are great and godly men, um, men who I consider my spiritual forefathers that have come out of that tradition. So if, um, you know, I, I'm thinking Bunyan, I'm thinking Spurgeon, um, Whitfield, uh, I, you know, uh, we can go on Lloyd Jones, all of those guys. Um, I would do nothing to separate myself from them and, and from the Calvinists or the reform guys today. However, if, if, they were to be listening to our conversation and go, you know what, we're kicking Greg out. Okay, fine. You can kick me out, but I definitely wouldn't want to separate myself uh, from them because I do recognize the, the amazing ways God has used their ministry, regardless of the fact that whatever particular definitions they held to, I might not hold the exact same definition. Yeah, well, I think that's well said. And uh, certainly, uh, I, I don't uh, want to divorce myself from those guys either. I know that sometimes it's the, the the purpose even just reminding anybody who doesn't you know who forgot or maybe some this is the very first time that they're watching this conversation the very point of doing this and calling it one accord and getting together guys that I know don't agree on all the particulars of certain things wasn't because we want to divorce ourselves from each other and from various traditions and, and be schismatic but because we are unified and you know what it's okay it's actually healthy to have some of these conversations even if we get passionate it's healthy to have a rigorous conversation about things that actually matter instead of just surrounding ourselves in the echo chamber. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I really like Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. I've, I've read their journals. I really love those guys. Those guys loved each other and they really disagreed on these things. They had, you know, serious, hearty, uh, uh, rigorous debate. But uh, there's a quote, I'll, I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I remember, you, you know, you're not, maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about, Greg. So. But so they so. asked, uh, they asked George Whitfield, you know, because uh, him and, the Wesleys, you know, they disagreed with each other. They, they thought he'd see Wesley in, in heaven, and he initially said no. And they go, oh, you don't think he'll be in heaven? He said, no, he'll be so close to the throne, I won't be able to see him from where I am, you know, all the way in the back. And, um, you know, certainly I, uh, I, I, the men that you listed, I'm not as familiar with all of them maybe as you are, but certainly like Spurgeon and Whitfield and, and some of these others. I mean, these, of course, are my brothers. I don't think I de define total depravity exactly the same way that they do. Um, you know, I, I don't know if uh, people will be calling you, Greg, and Arminian at the end of this episode, if you define it enough differently than those guys. I, I'm maybe not sure. Maybe. Um, but, I doubt uh, it, but maybe. But, but I, I do know this for sure. I'm not going to try and kick you out of this group. I, I enjoy having your perspective in here, uh, even when we, well, uh, you, even when we disagree. So um, anyway, um, it's, uh, it's, it is good to see you both. And so thanks again for, uh, for being here and for uh, taking the time to have these kinds of conversations and coming back for more. It's, uh, uh, again, I uh, look forward to uh, getting into the meat. So let's do that. Why don't we just uh, kind of kick it off? Uh, Pastor Eric, why don't we start with you? If someone came to you and just said, hey, I, I've heard people talking about this doctrine of total depravity or radical depravity, um, you know, what, uh, what does that mean? How would you kind of frame it? Uh, where would you kick us off? A little open-ended. So I'll let you take it, uh, take it where you'd like. Yeah. If someone asked me what I believe total depravity means, um, I don't know that, first of all, I would use the word total. I guess it depends on what they mean by that. Um, but how I understand uh, human depravity is the, the first thing to consider is that uh, our depravity was caused by Adam's sin. This is something that the Bible maintains 
um, I think I think repeatedly. Um, Paul mentions this in, for example, Romans chapter five, when he says that basically Adam's sin, uh, Adam's one sin, and he, and he specifically says his one sin, his one transgression, that um, caused the fall of mankind. And of course, I'm summarizing, but uh, because Adam sinned, everybody else also sins. And um, so that's that's the, the most important thing to, to keep in mind is it's it's not simply that, you know, we all just have chosen to sin, although there is some truth to that too. But the, the main thing is that Adam's one sin caused um, death to spread to all men and all men sin. So all men are sinners. And to be more specific, I believe the Bible teaches that every person who's who's born is born with a an inclination to sin, and by sin I really mean to go his or her own way and rebel against God. That inclination, or they used to they used to call it the sin bent. Every person uh, is born with that bent, that inclination to sin, and to go his or her own way. Actually, in Isaiah fifty three, Isaiah said. All of us, like sheep, have um, gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So at the root of sin is self. So we're born with this selfish inclination. We're born with this desire to to do what we want to do, uh, which is in conflict uh, with what God wants to do or, or what God wants us to do. And um, everybody, everybody is in that condition uh, from birth. They can't escape from it apart from uh, the the sacrifice of Christ and and what He offers uh, through the cross, and so um, yeah, that that is that's that's the most basic, I think, way that I would summarize uh, the the fall of man and, and the depravity of man. I I appreciate that, and I really appreciate that you brought in um, even a definition of sin because I I think that um, most people, well. A lot of people that I talk to anyway, they think about sin in very different ways. And for some people, it's just a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, but I appreciate uh, the way that you said it of, of going our own way, that even some things that uh, on the appearance um, might seem like good, upright activities, but if we're going in our own way, that that, that even can be sin. And so I, I appreciate you defining that because that's a, a term that maybe um, maybe people take differently. So at least I appreciate you kind of uh, explaining the way that, that you view it. And so if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, maybe you can uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm misstating it. You believe that this kind of doctrine, whether you call it total depravity or, or radical depravity, humans are depraved um, with an inclination to go their own way, not to go God's way, from the, basically the moment of conception. I don't I, uh, because of because of the fall that happened with Adam. Every single human being is born into this state. Is that uh, that's what you're saying? The long and short of it. That's that's what I'm saying. Yes, I believe every person's born into sin. In Psalm 51, five, uh, David said that he was conceived or born in iniquity. Um, and so I, I think I think that's one one verse that, uh, that suggests that people are born into sin. You don't you're not born and then you become a sinner later. You're 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 born into sin. Um, now I would I would also this is the main thing and this is maybe the might be the, the point of contention today. Uh, while man is depraved, while every person is a sinner, every person is born into sin, I do not believe that, that people are born hating God 
and unable to do anything good. And by good, I mean even something that, that God would consider good. So I, I'm, not, um, I'm not really comfortable with using the word total, if by total they mean, and I've heard people define total depravity this way, that people are born into, into sin in the sense that they're born hating God. All they are capable of is sinning. All they're capable of is just evil all the time. And, uh, and there's, there's nothing, there's no capacity at all for anything good to, to any degree. And I think that's going beyond scripture. I think it's just going way too far. And it, it makes man um, more, I think, more helpless than he really is. Man is helpless. Paul said that in Romans, um, Romans chapter 5, I believe it was. Um, but, uh, but, but man is, is not, uh, you know, he's not so helpless that he, you know, that he can't, you know, do certain things that, that are pleasing to God. So we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that way more later on, but I'm just going to, I'm just trying to give you the abbreviated version. Yeah, no, I was, uh, that was going to be my follow-up question. So you, uh, you anticipate, you answered it in anticipation, which I appreciate, which is why you would maybe shy away from the, the totally depraved. So um, you don't think that every person is born uh, as evil as they could possibly be and that they always do the most wicked thing that could possibly be done and stuff like that. And right. So I, I have, um, it's been very few people, but I have heard someone that has, you know, kind of articulated that particular view. And most of the theologians that I've read have, have even when they use total depravity, they still separate themselves from that view. They're, what we're not saying is that every single person is as wicked as they could ever possibly be. Um, even, you know, the, the iconically bad people that we think of, like, you know, Hitler or... Uh, he wasn't as bad as he could have been. They weren't as bad as they could have been. There was still greater depths, you know, of depravity that they could have gone to. Um, even so sometimes that word, I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, at least the theologians I read, have moved away from total depravity to radical depravity in saying that we are uh, radical at its, uh, as long as I understand the etymology of this word correctly, uh, you know, goes to the very root. And so to the very core of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our will, uh, the choices that we make, the things that we do, following our heart, going after the, you know, the things that seem right to us, doing what's right in our own eyes. Um, all of that to our very root is depraved. Does that mean it's as depraved as it could be? No, we could get worse. But, uh, but from, the, from the beginning, um, that's kind of what that, that word means. And so if I had to choose between totally and radically, radically is probably more accurate for the view that, that I hold. Um, and, and I understand why theologians have moved that way. But rule of the, pro- the, yeah, the, the, the same. problem with radically, and, I, and I'm not disagreeing with you in any way, the problem with radically over depravity is um, we now use radically uh, to, to express uh, degree, right? Like this is good. This is radically good. Right. Um, so it, you could very easily, again, depending on how people use the word radically, mm-hmm. um, you could mean that it's intensely. Uh, so yep. there's no, going to, yeah. there's going to need to be clarification regardless, I think of what yeah. term we use. For sure. Now that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the nature of words changing meaning, right? I mean, we talked about that in our last episode for our translations and, uh, um, for those who want to date themselves, radical used to mean a good thing, and this is not being used in a good way. So, uh, does anybody say radical anymore? I don't think so. Um, right. That's, that's, that's just the Ninja that. Turtles. That's See, the Ninja Turtles. All right. I was, I was uh, thinking Simpsons. So, you know, yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me <laughs> say something really quick. Cowabunga. If I could. Cowabunga. Yes. Uh, very closely akin to radical depravity. Um, yeah. But I've heard, uh, I've, I've heard someone, uh, I heard someone put it this way. I, I, I like this, this way of saying it, 
I've heard someone say that we are sufficiently depraved. And mm. basically the idea is that we, we are depraved to the point where we cannot save ourselves. We're sinners. We are deserving of God's judgment. Uh, we're deserving of punishment. And there's nothing that we can do. There's no goodness that we can do that will cancel out or make up for the evil that we've done. So we, um, we can't save ourselves. We are in a, a state of um, helplessness in that sense. And uh, every one of us needs the grace of God. And uh, we need regeneration and, uh, and the Holy Spirit to, to live a life that's, that's pleasing to God. So that's, yeah. I can well, like if, that, that way of describing it. If you're sufficiently depraved, I will admit to being abundantly depraved. So, okay. Well, yeah. hey, I've you never said heard it, not me. I've never heard either of those titles, but <laughs> I, understand, uh, I understand it now that you've described it. So I, I appreciate you bringing that in. Uh, one more point of clarity before we maybe turn it over to Greg and see what, uh, if he would have any different ways of, of doing that. But I know that some, you know, for some people, as we've said before, that the Arminian term can be a, a bad word. Um, you know, I, I kind of was trained in a lot of uh, reformed theology. And so when people threw that term around, they didn't, they didn't mean it as a compliment. They were, they were being rude to people, but I know that you, you know, you're proudly and uh, proud in that sense, but you, you own that title and you, you come from that perspective. One of the things that I learned that kind of straw manned many Arminian positions, it's more Pelagian really than, than Arminian was the idea that um, human beings are born morally neutral, that they can kind of pull themselves up by their own, um, by their own works that, um, you know, there is hope for pre people um, kind of that their nature hasn't, uh, you know, completely made them unable even to save themselves. Um, you would distance yourself from that position, right? I mean, based on what you're saying, you, you don't. I totally that reject that. Yeah, I also totally reject that. And just for, for the sake of clarity and putting that out there, I, I, I knew you would, but I at least wanted to articulate it. Uh, so, um, you know, for somebody, about, well, I would say for, for somebody that, that does come from the more reformed and happily comes from the more reformed tradition, you know, I, I've, I've sat in Arminian or maybe, maybe you'd say Pelagian churches that, you know, the, the sermon went something like this. Why do we choose to be Christian? Lay it out there. Why are we Christian? And the next 45 minutes is look at all these great things we do. And we choose to be Christian because we want to participate in all these good and great things. End sermon. That's it. That is the message. Um, and, and so, again, coming from a more Reformed tradition, well, I hear, yeah, you, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps really well. You know, you, you see all these good things, and because you're a good person, you choose to be a Christian because of all the good you see around you uh, coming out of, out of that camp. So I'm not saying you're arguing for that in any way, just saying that so you see where the other side is coming from. Eric, was that your sermon from last time? Did I, I, did, about I, did, I did. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> Well, I, I I don't remember talking about that. Um, I I've been in Galatians, so uh, no, I, I he uh, I think it's he's he's talking about somebody else. I, oh, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, was I've it never me, sat in your church? I, I, I can no. be obtuse sometimes. Was it me? <laughs> no, I, I, um, I, I I don't. You don't need to call out. That's fine. Yeah, uh, no, no, that, that's fair. That's a uh, fair clarification. That's a good segue. Uh, how about you? How would you if someone came to you and just said, "Brother Greg, I, I'm I've been." thinking about sure. these things. I hear these terms being thrown around, total depravity, radical depravity, sufficient depravity, abundant depravity. How am I supposed to, uh, how am I supposed to view this? What, uh, what say you, what does the Bible say about the nature of uh, depravity? Sure. Um, well, I, and I know that analogies fall apart, but to begin, I, the analogy that I like that I've used in the past is back in the nineties, there was a movie that came out, um, a few good men, Cuba Gooding Jr., some other big names in there. 
Um, and it was the story of Martin Brashear becoming uh, the first rescue diver or something like that in the, in the Navy. And he was a black guy. Um, and at this time it was very segregated. And part of the, part of the story as it goes along, he's trying to get through this school and uh, the commandant of the school calls in the lead instructor of the school and um, is explaining to him the fact that this black guy is never going to become part of this elite group. Um, and he, and he talks about, he says, you know, um, I think it was, and maybe I'm quoting the movie wrong, but two tablespoons of motor oil can poison an entire ship's drinking supply. That if, if you mix in two tablespoons worth of worth of oil, whatever that, however many thousands of gallons a ship's uh, water supply is, you've you've poisoned that water. And so I think of total depravity in those terms. Um, is all of the water motor oil? Well, no, it's it's not completely motor. Uh, it's not. We haven't replaced all the water with oil, but we've mixed in enough that that no part of, no pocket, no pool of that water is free from being poisonous to consumption. So with that analogy in mind, um, I view total depravity as every part of us, our, our mind, our body, our, our soul, we have been poisoned um, by an inclination to depart from the will of God. And and so Eric gave a, a, a definition of sin. I don't disagree with that. You know, often you hear the question raised, you know, did God create evil? Well, I think that's like, as I understand evil and therefore sin, um, that doesn't make sense because um, in my view, evil is anything that departs from God's way, from what God has set as a standard. So did he have to create it? No, well, of course not, because he, he gave the standard, anything short of, anything departing from that is evil. Um, so no, he didn't create it. So yeah, I would say total depravity is the reality that we have been affected by sin. Every part of us has been affected by sin um, to, to varying degrees in, in each of us, right? I wouldn't argue that some of us are born more loving, more kind, more generous than, than others. Nevertheless, we are affected. Every part of us is affected by sinfulness, evil, and a and a desire to go our own way. To put it in Eric's words, I have uh, two follow up questions, uh, if you don't mind. The, the first, um, I have heard some people. Um, I, I think maybe this is similar, but you can let me know if I'm understanding you or if I'm misunderstanding you. I've heard some other people talk about uh, a sim similar analogy that um, you know God created light. And that light is a thing, mm -hmm. um, even scientifically, it's something that's measurable. And yeah. that darkness is actually the absence of that thing. Yeah. Um, and so did God create evil? No, God created good. And then uh, evil is what is the result of the absence of good. Um, yeah. do, you, do you hold that view or would you describe it differently? Because if, if we have a kind of this um, sullied nature, um, we're mingling or, or diminishing, I guess, good mingling wickedness with goodness. Um, I guess that's kind of some of the things I'm hearing as you're talking, but I'm not sure that that's yeah. exactly what you mean. Um, for sure, this is a working idea in my head and I'm still fleshing it out. But yeah, um, I, in my, even I've never read that position. So to hear that other people have come, have expressed it the same way, I go, oh, that's interesting. Um, but yes, um, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And, and so there was darkness before that. And so did he need to 
create the darkness so that he could no it was an absence of light so i i don't th- i don't think that's a bad analogy but perhaps there are implications to that that i haven't considered yeah it seems like you know if we read the book of genesis and i i know that that can be very controversially uh interpreted but um the the original origin story everything that he made was good and then of course they fall by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so now they know uh good and evil they only knew good before and evil is kind of introduced um as part of this falling away from that perfectly righteous standard and so it's kind of the absence of uh, goodness then allows for these other things to to take part um like i say i I didn't want to attribute that to you i just you know we we all are filtering through things that we've heard and thought about before so i wanted to make sure i was kind of picking up what you were laying down the second follow-up question that i had for you um based on what you were saying and uh, kind of based on what eric started us off with he said that he thinks that um that people even who are depraved um can do some things that are good uh, even in the sight of god eric you i'm not misquoting you right you did say that um greg would you agree with that i think that you said something similar in one of our other episodes um but again i might be misremembering so do you think that people even with that you know two teaspoons of motor oil kind of corrupted in their nature or whatever can they still do things that are good even in the sight of god or are they can they do nothing good so i'm gonna i'll turn to the words of Jesus here, and then I'll, I'll try to answer it. Uh, I'm reading from Matthew 7. I'll begin at verse 7. So we're right in the middle of, we're right near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, uh, he will not give him a snake, will he? Here's the uh, here's kind of the key. Uh, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And, and so in my understanding here, Christ is kind of assuming they're starting from a default position of evil. Generally speaking, you are stained by a lack of, of righteousness. Yet, you're doing things that are that are good. You're, you're giving. It's good to give good gifts to your children. Um, now, uh, where it gets tricky, you're saying, okay, it is a it's a good thing not to steal, right? Well, lots of people go significant portions of their life, perhaps, um, not stealing, and so it's good not to steal. It's good to be generous, and there are plenty of. Um, there are plenty of Christians who start hospitals and, you know, give to orphans and widows. And so we would say, is a, is a non-Christian who caring for orphans and widows doing a good thing? Well, sure. I, I think we, I think we have to say that regardless of whatever's driving you, uh, giving to orphans and widows is a objectively good thing. Now, is it objectively righteous from the heart or, you know, We'd have to start getting into judging the heart behind that, um, which, again, we would all, I think, admit that none of us are capable of that. So can a, can a can an act be objectively good, meeting the standard God has laid out? Yes, I think so, um, even if they're unregenerate. Does that, does that put them right in a right position with God? Does that justify them in God's sight? No, not not in any way, shape, or form. So 
so yeah, I think there is still water mixed with that oil. Um, and if the water could be separated from the oil, um, as, as happens when we are given a new nature and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that'd be a different thing. I appreciate that. Um, I think one of the things that, um, you know, people can stumble over, uh, and this is probably more characteristic of the, the more thoroughly reformed camp. Um, and I, I don't hear either of you guys saying this, but, uh, I, I, I think of things that I read, um, previously that, um, you know, people can do nothing good. Um, and you know, the proof text that I would have gone to uh, from the, from the beginning, you know, Genesis, uh, six, five, uh, when God's talking about, he's about to, uh, judge the world that, uh, you know, God's, uh, ass- God's assessment, right. It's not up to us to judge people's hearts, but God's assessment of humanity at that point is that they're, they're, uh, doing only evil all the time. So only evil continually. And then after the flood, um, you know, he gives the covenant of the rainbow. It's in, uh, uh chapter nine, I think that he says, um, something to the effect of, you know, I, I will never again judge the world. Um, even though all their deeds are evil from their youth. Um, the, we talk about the radical depravity or the total depravity, the nature of it. Uh, you know, anybody who's had children uh, realizes you don't have to, although your children might not steal all the time, um, you know, they might try and grab a cookie when nobody's looking. You know, if you catch them, even if they got chocolate all over their face, you say, do you eat that cookie? They'll lie right to you and say, no, I didn't eat that cookie. Um, they will try and steal things from other people. They will, you know, the, the covetousness is evident. The only toy that they want is the other, is the toy that the other sibling is playing with, right? That's the only, that's covetousness just at, at work in their, in their flesh. You don't have to teach them these things. It's just, it's there. And so, um, the, the proclivity uh, of going our own way, um, some of the more reformed, you know, authors that I've read and, and theologians that I've interacted with, um, can even liken, uh, you know, the, to the passage that Eric, that you were quoting us already, um, that we all like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has gone to it their own way. Isaiah likewise said that we have become like one who is unclean. And so then all our righteous uh, deeds are like these filthy rags. And so the, the uncleanness of our person um, taints even the righteous deeds that we might do. So in, in one sense, Greg, and again, you, you correct me if I'm, uh, I, again, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, I think maybe they would go a step further, and I wonder if you agree with this or if you disagree with this, that there are things that are objectively good. Not stealing is good. Helping orphans and widows is good. Building an orphanage is a good thing, whether you are an atheist or a Christian or a, a Buddhist or whatever. Like to, to try and care for widows and orphans in their distress is a good thing, um, objectively. But if done with the wrong motivation, if done with the wrong heart, then it is done from someone who is unclean. And the uncleanness of that person does make that deed, although objectively in one sense, especially from man's point of view, this is a good thing that has been done from God's perspective uh, on the day of judgment. There is nothing meritorious here because we have, um, because we've done it with maybe the wrong motive or the wrong reason. Um, maybe let's say we, we did it simply so that they would put our name on the placard. So we received our applause from men. We've gotten our reward in full. Maybe um, we are uh, so selfish that we're focused on the wrong group. Maybe I was supposed to donate a million dollars to help these widows and orphans, but I don't like them because, uh, you know, their skin color isn't the right color or their nationality isn't the right nationality. So I help this group instead, which has ample support. So I gave money, but I gave it to the wrong people because my motivations were wrong. God judges all these things. I'm not the judge of that. You guys aren't the judge of that, but it's God judges these things. He says, you, you know, you've been a bad steward of what I've entrusted to you. And in that sense, 
it's only evil all the time. Do you agree with that? Like, or do you think that that's overstating it? Because again, that's the position that I came from before. Uh, if you had asked me this question, especially when I was in seminary or fresh out of seminary, those are all the proof texts I would have gone to. Certainly, I've done a lot of witnessing where people are like, "Well, hey, I raised money for this, you know, this group doing this, you know, an atheist is saying I, I did this biking thing." Um, I'm thinking of a guy I talked to in, in California, Greg. We've talked about that witnessing trip. He, you know, he's like, "You're telling me I've done nothing good?" Like, you know that that um, you know this this money I raised doing this biking thing. Uh, that, that God doesn't care about that. I said, well, I'm not saying God doesn't care about it. I'm just saying that you didn't do it for the motivation of pleasing God. You didn't do it for the motivation of giving glory to God. You did it for the fact that you can talk about it. And in that regard, like you haven't done anything that he will, he will reward you for on judgment day, according to what I understand of scripture. Do you view it differently than that? Or, or would you articulate it differently? Um, I don't think I, I depart from that much you know in, in no substantive way but i just say this like let's say let's say that that caring for a widow truly was um worthy of being placed on the scale of good or bad as as god judges you um let, let's let, let's just grant that Understand that that's a grain of sand on one side and a mountain on the other, right? Um, your rejection of God, who as He is, as He's revealed Himself, your rejection of the Son, your your covetous heart, your lying tongue—all of these things so vastly outweigh over a lifetime, whether or not you've given to a hospital or whatever these good things are. It, it's almost inconsequential. Um, it's an interesting point to discuss, I suppose, but I don't know that it doesn't amount. It doesn't amount to anything. So whether or not that good deed, if, if in the, and I don't know this, if in the mind of God, that good deed gets to be isolated out and weighed in the balance, it, it still comes to nothing. Yeah. So I, I am, um, I don't disagree with that. I, I appreciate you kind of your clarification. Um, can I ask you guys about, uh, one verse in particular, it's John chapter five, verse 29, um, which in, in my estimation is if, if someone's going to try and make a case for some sort of, I don't know, works-based salvation, uh, this is maybe the, the kind of the proof text that would go there. Uh, Jesus says um, that those who did the good deeds will go to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Um, I mean, if, if it is possible that someone could, uh, apart from Christ, um, apart from being, re you know, regenerated by the grace of God, apart from being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, apart from all those things, if someone could accumulate anything good, does it then become theoretically conceivable that someone could somewhere accumulate enough good deeds that they, they would be judged? Because on the more, you know, we don't have a fully reformed participant, you know, of this, but I, I think, and I, you know, maybe if anybody's watching, they could let me know if I'm butchering the position, but I think that the, the fully reformed position would, would say that this is not teaching works-based righteousness because the only people who've any actually done any good deeds are only those who've been born again. Uh, those who've been saved by the grace of God through faith, because apart from God, they can do nothing good. Now that's not disagreeing with the statement that you read from Matthew seven. Um, the, the, the deeds themselves, uh, the objective, like you can give a good gift 
um, the gift itself might be good because God has given these things and that's from God. But the, you might even give it out of love for your child, which is sure. a, a good natural affection. It's God good is. to love your children. Yes. And, yeah. and, and again, atheists love their children just as much as, as Christians, sometimes maybe even more so. Um, so the, the idea though, that the uncleanness of what we are, uh, Paul Washer, I think, put it this way in a sermon that I watched a long time ago. If I'm a leper, you can take the, the finest of clothes from, made from the finest fabrics, you know, the, the most wonderful silk or whatever. But as soon as you put those clothes on a leper, the, the rotten skin condition of, of who they are sullies what you've put on it. So the thing itself might have been good, but as soon as it's touched to the person, it becomes unclean. And, um, you know, all the, there's all these parts in the law about, you know, those who are unclean, they have to stay away, right? So if, when, when, when Isaiah uses that term, we've all become like one who's unclean. Think of all the times that God is talking about them doing things that he commanded, things according to the law. He says, you know, I hate your festivals. Well, he commanded those festivals. He says, I hate it. You're going through the motions. You're doing these things, but you're not really doing it for me. And I hate it. I wish you'd put the fire out. I wish you'd close the gates. He's like, well, didn't you command us to keep the fire constantly going and to never close the gates? He says, yes, but I wish you would just, I wish you would do these things because I can't stand what you're doing because even though you're doing something that objectively seems good from God's perspective, which again, it's not my perspective, from his perspective, he's saying, I hate this thing. Yeah. And so it, it seems oh, to me ahead. that the, the testimony of scripture is that our deeds are never separated from the heart, from the, from the disposition, from the 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 thought process that led to them. Right? Yeah. And so yep. if I'm if I'm giving to orphans because I want everyone to stand up and clap, or if I'm praying in the streets so that men will take notice, um, I'm I'm no better in the end. It, it is yeah. no more virtuous than had I not done those at all. It seems to me that of course, you know, God his standard is not my standard. That human beings we can do there's like a spectrum. I can do the wrong thing for the wrong reason. I can do the wrong thing maybe for the right reason. I can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And then I can do the right thing for the right reason. And it seems that God is only interested in us doing the right thing for the right reason and then doing it all the time. And even if we did that fully, um, Jesus talks about, I think in Luke's gospel, he says, even if after we've done everything that we were supposed to do, doing every single right thing for the right reason, still we would say, God, we're, we're unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done. Yeah, amen. And so um, I think in a conversation like this, some of that nuance that I really appreciate, you know, hearing the perspective that you guys are sharing. Um, and, I, you know, I've appreciated the, the theologians that I've read as well. There is a lot of nuance that none of us think that we can save ourselves. We, we all need a savior. If, if anyone could have been saved, if anyone could have achieved the righteousness of the law, um, then Christ died for nothing. And scriptures just say this very plainly. So nobody's going to be able to accumulate, you know, enough good to, to save themselves. Um, there are things, though, that I don't know, objectively, objectively, you know, I think that people who aren't Christians can do things that certainly by our standards are good. And maybe even by God's in some sense, like that was a good gift. You, you gave your kids a good gift. That was a good. Um, but on the day of judgment, I'm not sure. I still think that that's like a leper with a good gift in their hand, that there is, because of the nature of our depravity, that there is still, um, it has been tainted and it falls short of that right thing for the right reason. And I don't think that that will be accumulated, you know, on the cosmic scale. Like I, I still think that apart from Christ, everything ends up on the bad side because of that corruption. 
um, that it could have been like what God's best was, was still better. There might've been some remnants of good there because we're not as depraved as we could be, but our, either our bad motivation or our bad intention or our doing it with no thought for loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the greatest commandment. All, all of these things sully that to some degree is at least where still where I think I'm at. Um, which that you know, sounds I, very, I mean, so I've got, as I, as I said earlier, I've got a definition that is a very classical reformed Calvinistic definition of total depravity. And I don't, I don't hear you departing from that very much. If, if really substantively at all. Not bad for an Arminian, huh, Greg? Not bad for, yeah, you know, you, you might be saved, brother. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you going to read us the definition? Oh, I, I absolutely yeah. can, yeah. And, and I've, for everyone that's interested, I've given them this this definition ahead of time, and there should be a slide. Um, and this comes from a, a gentleman named Lorraine Botner. Again, if if you go, if you Google, you know, classic definition of total depravity from a reform position, you're going to find Lorraine Botner's definition. So I'll, I'll start quoting now. This doctrine of total inability, parentheses, that's switching out for total depravity, um, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that a man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. His corruption is extensive, but not necessarily intensive, it is in this sense that man, since the fall, is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. He possesses a fixed bias of the will against God, and instinctively and willingly turns to evil. He is alien by birth and a sinner by choice. The inability under which he labors is not an inability to exercise volitions, maybe what we call will, but an inability to be, will to be willing to exercise holy volitions. And it was in this phase of which led Luther to declare free will is an empty term whose reality is lost and a lost liberty, according to my grammar, is no liberty at all. And I'll stop there. You can, you can find this quote just about anywhere. Um, on the internet, just search Lorraine Botner, total depravity. And so as I read this, um, I can understand like there, there's parts of this that I go, yeah, amen, for sure. And then there's parts that I go, man, it sounds like you're disagreeing with yourself. And it sounds like we've crossed. I think I see Eric shaking his head and nodding like, yes, yes. Um, and perhaps it's as contradictory as it sounds, perhaps with more nuance and fleshing out, uh, the honorable divine Lorraine Botner would be uh, divine by saint of the past, not Godhood um, would, would agree with us. I'm not sure he's not here to argue for, for that position. Well, Eric, I, I, you're, you're seemingly uh, responding to parts of that. So you, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, and this will get us kind of into the next segment that we were thinking about of, of bringing in this term of inability, but I'm just curious on your initial, your initial thoughts on that quote that Greg just read. 
Well, I agree with what Greg said at the end. Um, he said there are certain parts of it that seem reasonable, and I would say in the ballpark. And then there are other parts where it, it sounded like he contradicted himself. Um, when he said they're wholly, they're given, I think, I think it was something like they're wholly inclined, wholly inclined to evil, oh, excuse me, wholly inclined to all evil. Um, which, yeah, again, I, I, I yeah, that's not mean, what I guess doesn't yeah, exactly right. Like if you take the previous paragraph in light of that, you know, it sounds contradictory. Um, it, it, on the he's not as, it seems because you also say it's not as yeah. bad as he could be. Well, if he's not as bad as he could be, how can he be wholly inclined to all evil? So I, I, I'm agreeing with you, brother. And maybe this is where the reform camp goes, Greg, you're, you're out of here. Okay. Fair enough. Out of the bad and into the good. Um, no. <laughs> out um, of the fire and into the frying or out of the frying <laughs> and into the fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess, um, yeah, I, I guess really in order to, to get at the, at the root of this, um, we should probably go over some specific texts because um, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that unbelievers are only able to do evil and even the good things, or at least the things that seem good on the surface are actually evil and, uh, and done with um, impure motives. I, um, I really have a, a rough time with that um so just i think one of the main but what would text. be let me ask this what would be uh, let's let's take any any action that a that a man or woman can undertake what would be the right motive can, can we could we lay that foundation like could, could we say that that underneath every other layer of motivation that there would be one qualification one characteristic that makes every action either good or evil. And I have an answer for that. So I'm curious if you'll come to the same conclusion. Okay. Well, um, I think one good motive, uh, maybe not, not necessarily the good motive. I think I know what the good motive would be, but, but I think an acceptable motive, a motive that, that would put an action in the realm of good would be to do something for someone else's benefit. And I just, I know that sounds overly simplistic, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, love is not self-seeking, which means it seeks the good of another person. And that's, that's what makes it, uh, that's what makes it true love. And I think a, an unbeliever can do something with the desire, um, the desire for someone else's good in mind. I think they can, they really can desire the good of somebody else. They're not doing this for selfish reasons. Reasons they're doing this because they want to benefit the other person. Um, I, th I think they can really do that, and um, I think that that God would be um, happy with that. Now, now if they did it for uh, for the glory of God, I think it would be even better than if they had done it simply for the benefit of, of the other person and for no other reason. But um, I think that desiring something, doing something that that is motivated by wanting to, you know, bring good to somebody else, I think that is a good thing, and that's that's acceptable in in God's sight. Yeah, and I guess I can imagine circumstances. I can imagine situations where wanting to do good for someone isn't a thing a, a thing that would be good according to the standard of god and so i would go to where what you just said before that 
under it all, um, at the most basic uh, foundational level, if any action that I take isn't for the glory of God and in submission to him, I think at the end of the day, and, and, and it says a lot, right? Uh, think about how profound, if that's true, think about how profound it is that if the underlying most basic motivation of everything that I do isn't for the glory of God and my willing submission to him, I think it could be judged evil. I think you could be judged wrong. Um, and so in that case, I, I would almost have to go, I, I'm, a, I'm agreeing with Lorraine Botner here and saying that I'm inclined to, to evil because I'm not inclined based upon the glory of God and my submission to him as I should be as a creature of his, um, but I'm inclined based upon any, any number of other things. So this is, this is what I would say. I think just as there are different degrees of evil, I think we would probably all agree with that. I also think there are different degrees of good, which makes me believe that uh, if someone does something for the benefit of somebody else, but not necessarily for the glory of God, I think that act would still be in the realm of, of good, even though it's not the highest good. It's, it's, because in order to be the highest good, I think you're, you're right when you say, if it's not done for the glory of God, um, well, I mean, you didn't say it this way, but it's not, it's not, it wouldn't be an idea. It's not pure. It's not pure. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not totally pure. But, it's not holy. But, Okay, but if someone does something for the benefit of somebody else, and and you know, ha and puts aside self in order to do it, I I still think it's good, even though it's not as good as it could be. Just me, like just like there are some there's some there's levels within evil. I think there are levels sure. within good too. Do you think it's meritorious? I don't think any act of ever done by anybody can ever merit justification before God, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I, I guess I, I wasn't even trying necessarily to go that far. Okay. Um, I, I thought you, maybe you weren't, but I didn't yeah, know for sure. Yeah. I, 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 and, yeah. So I, yeah, for, for me, and again, this is self-incriminating as, as can be, if it is at its core, if, if any action that I take, if any deed that I do is not at its core, for the glory of God and, and submission to him, I, I, I see no reason why it shouldn't be judged as incriminating. Eric, how, uh, how would you read Matthew 546? Like, does this, uh, how, how do you interpret that statement from Jesus there? Because um, it seems like it's talking about the same basic issue that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Amen. But I'm, I'm curious on your, how you read that. Matthew 546. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Well, I think what he's saying is there's there's a there's a love that is um, that's not Christian love. Um, now, does that does that make the love um, you know not loving? I don't know that it does. I think it just puts it in a different category. Um, now I would say this. He says, what, what reward do you have? What value is there? What, what, what good does that do you? Yeah, you're, you're not, this, this is not something that you're going to be rewarded for because in the context, he's talking about loving your enemies. 
And God is someone who loves his enemies, and therefore Christians should love theirs. So again, I think, I think what, what this verse is saying is, I think it's just simply saying there's Christian love, and then there's a love that's less than that. There's, there's a love that it exists among unbelievers. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that love is less than Christian love. It's, and when he says no reward, I, I don't know that he means that it's not good in any sense. I mean, you know, to love your, um, to, to love your family, I think is a good thing. Now, is it, does it get you um, points with God? No. So when you say but, a Christian love, don't, aren't you, when you differentiate between a Christian love and a non-Christian love, aren't you in essence saying the same thing that I'm saying that there is, that there is a love that springs from a desire for the glory of God and obedience to him and a love that, that doesn't. And therefore not only is it less good, it's in, we, we could use the word inferior, inadequate. Um, I, I'm happy with the word inferior. Yes. I'm, I'm totally happy with that word. Yeah. Because it's, it's uh loving people who love you is, is really just natural. It comes natural to us. We, we typically love our families. Um, we, unless you're a sociopath. But. Unless you're a sociopath. It's true. Um, but people typically love their families, and there's, there's, no, there's no reward in that because that's just your natural inclination to do that. I mean, animals love their offspring some of the time. I mean, not all of them do, but there's, there's animals. Uh, you know, I saw this video of a mother bear helping her cubs over a fence uh, the other day. Why didn't you share that one? What's the deal, Eric? Well, I thought you liked me. Come on, man. I tell, I'll send that to you um, after <laughs> afterward. But appreciate it. Um, but I think. But again, I, I still would say that yes. And Greg, what you just said, I would agree with that. I think that um, I think love the love that's described in Matthew five forty six is definitely inferior to Christian love. Um, but does that make it? evil. Uh, and I would say, I don't think it makes it evil. I just think it's not, it's not enough. And it's is not, it, it's not is what, it pure. Is it whole? Like, I, I guess, yeah, I, I, perhaps in incorrectly, I'm trying to establish that there is an act that is pure in the sight of God. And sure, fine. I, I'm willing to admit that everything short of that exists on some, some type of scale. But regardless, if it doesn't cross that threshold into purity, it can technically be classified as not, not perfect, therefore evil. Oh, yeah. It, de well, it I, depart so it departs, it departs I from the way. Go ahead. I like, I like how you said it to begin with, because you said, um, and I'm not sure if you use this word, but it's like it's tainted. There's still a taint of evil there. There's still a taint. And by evil, I really mean there's still a taint of self. It's tainted by self. If you love your family, you love your family because it's your family. Um, so I so think that in, in that case, could we agree with Lorraine Botner that we are wholly inclined to, to all evil because unless we're doing it for that holy, pure, and perfect reason, it is to some degree evil? I think uh, ac according to that definition that you just gave, I, I think I can... I can agree with that. I can, I think there's, it's even the, you know, there's mode, there's motives of unbelievers that are still there. It's tainted. Like in this case, loving your family, if an unbeliever loves his or her family, um, 
it's their family and there's still there's still self that's involved even though loving your family is still a good thing and like you said you quoted Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said you who are evil give good gifts to your children um you know if if you do that well how much more will God give good gifts to his children if they ask and the word good i think is it's used um it, the word good applies to unbelievers uh, or those who are evil, and it, that word good applies to God. Now, obviously, God's good is better. I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but Jesus himself said it's still good in a sense. In other words, it's, it, it may be tainted by, by selfishness, but, but in a sense, it is still good, but on a, on a lower level. And I... And I don't think you're going to disagree with this at all, but I just want to clarify for anyone watching. Um, yeah, God's good is better, but I don't mean that like a little better. I don't mean that a lot better. I mean, it, it's a hundred. It's totally it is perfect. It is yeah. it is yes. so good that it almost isn't shouldn't be put in the same category as yeah. well. Well, it, yeah, right. I mean, God is God's actions are always a hundred percent pure. With and, no, I and again, I wasn't hearing you say. I just want to make sure yeah. that no one's going. Well, God's actions are to a degree better. No, no, no. I'm not uh, saying a little, I'm not saying just slightly better. I'm saying yeah. they're, they're totally per perfect. perfect. To totally pure. Yes, absolutely. I think this is a, you know, that the, the verse from Matthew seven that Greg, you kind of started this part of the conversation with is, um, is very helpful when we hear again, Jesus's assessment is you who know how to give good gifts. So there is some sense it's good are evil. And so like his assessment is not that you're good and you know how to give good gifts and you should just be a little better. His assessment is you are evil. And even though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts. And so it's a nuanced discussion that I think is important. And, and there is a pastoral concern because on one side of the spectrum, you know, I, I've, I've heard Christians who are basically telling unbelievers that them, you know, providing for their family is wicked. And it's like, well, hang, hang on a second. Like <laughs> there, there are like, you're going to say that, you know, if they, they help a homeless person and give them a sandwich and a bottle of water and, 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 and are kind to them that that's, that's wicked. Like in one sense, that doesn't make any sense to anybody. Um, but on the other hand, when you start patting people on the back and saying, Oh, see, you're a good person. You're a good person apart from Christ. Um, you're not a good person apart from Christ. And those other motivations matter. I, an analogy that's maybe suited me well before. And again, I know that the, the dangers of analogies, but you know, if you, if you go and rob a bank and, and kill everybody inside and on the way uh, on your escape, you know, as you're uh, leaving, you kind of hand out some of the packets of cash to some of the people going by and give them a smile and, you know, maybe buy them a Coke and here's a, here's a stack of $10,000 and you're gen generally kind. Like the, the other stuff has really tainted <laughs> this seemingly good gift that you're giving. And so, you know, the unbeliever um, doesn't realize that Everything that they do when they're, when they're doing what's right in their own eyes, all they're doing is that's what everybody does. That's what Hitler did. That's what Mother Teresa did. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so the question is getting back to what Greg said, like, are we doing this to the glory of God? The end of Romans 14 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. I'd be cautious says, with that, though. Uh, I, go ahead. I'd be cautious with um, interpreting Romans 14 that way. I think that's been grossly uh, misinterpreted. In Romans 14, Paul's specifically saying that if, if a Christian, um, and in that verse, he's talking about a, uh, a Jewish Christian who's eating what 
the Jews considered to be unclean food. Uh, while you know, while it, while his conscience is condemning him for the Jew, that's sin, because he's not eating the food with the confidence that this is acceptable to God, because his conscience is is at odds with with what he's doing. So in Romans fourteen, I I don't think he's saying that every deed that an unbeliever does is sin because they're not doing it in faith. I think he's saying that, that a Jew who's eating unclean food uh, with a, um, a contrary conscience is sinning because they're violating their conscience. But that doesn't mean every didn't, unbeliever— didn't we, already, didn't we already, in past conversations, come to the agreement that from Romans 11 on, it was not specifically only— tar- I, under- I disagree with you. But we, we, we at least agreed that you believed that that Romans eleven on was not exclusively to Jews, as you believe prior to to Romans eleven. It is so. So while he may give the the example about eating, that this is equally to Gentiles as it is to Jews at this point in Romans. Well, in Romans fourteen. He's he's taught he is he's of course he mentions Gentiles, and he says to the Gentiles, um, you know, you treat every day alike, uh, you eat anything you want, and you should because, um, you uh, you know you you haven't lived under the law, like the Jew has, but what you need to do is you need to make sure that when you if you eat something, that causes your brother to sin, well actually he says don't do that if if you're gonna. If you're going to eat something that your that your Jewish brother um, is uh, is going to stumble over, you need to refrain from doing that for the sake of your brother. So I'm going. So that, I'm just going to put forth there. the argument that I that I disagree with your with what you're saying. Um, you're you're making verse 23 specifically about Jews. I think is wrong, um, and I think it for this reason: these examples aren't. They are illustrative examples. He is laying down principles that are not principles exclusively for Jews. They are principles that are that are applicable to anybody who falls under the authority of of the Bible. And just because the example is more directly applicable to Jews, uh, doesn't the illustration doesn't mean the principle isn't equally applicable. So when I read the conclusion that whatever is not from faith is sin, I cannot say, well, that just means that if you you know, uh, dietary laws. Well, he actually uses the word unclean earlier in the chapter. He says, for example, in um, verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, when he talks about unclean, he's, he's speaking of food. And that's, and he says in verse 15, for if because of food, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. What's the, so, what's the principle being in in the in the verses that you're concerning yourself right right now? What is the principle being communicated? I'm gonna just I'll just give my cards, uh, tip my cards. Um, I think it's verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Um, th- th- this about, is about judge about this, what? Be, um, I'll go on, but rather determine this: not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Uh, so, is this? I disagree, but is this only Jewish brothers putting each other 
putting assembly blocks, or is this principle not to the church as a whole? Um, so again, I don't disagree that these illustrations may be particularly poignant to Jewish believers, but I do not in any way uh, agree that the principle isn't meant to be applied to to all believers. Well, the principle can apply to all believers. Can but, or is meant context. To. Okay, well, but but Paul doesn't speak generally here. He speaks specifically because he talks about food, and he also talks about certain days, certain holy days. He says earlier in 14, verse, uh, verse 4, For you to judge the servant to another, to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Now, when he says one man regards every day alike, He's talking about a Gentile. Gentiles didn't have the, the, the days that the Jews had, the holy days. The Jews did regard some days um, as being more sacred than others. And he goes on to talk about food. Uh, the Jews had you know, dietary laws that they had to follow. So I think in Romans 14, when, because he's talking about that specific thing, I think in, in verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, verse, what is it, 23? I think Joe quoted 23. Yeah. But if I remember right. I think 23, he's specifically saying that if a Jew eats food and he doubts in his conscience that God um, is, is, is okay with that, then his conscience is condemning him, and, he's, and therefore he's sinning because he's eating without faith, faith that God accepts his eating. We definitely just, I, and I don't want to belabor the point because we should move on probably, but um, we definitely have a disagreement in hermeneutics, um, whereas I see that being an illustration to make the point that Christians should not be putting obstacles or stumbling blocks by judging one another um, in the, the, the outworking of that is if you, well, whatever you're doing is not for, we, we're just going to, we're just going to continue to have a hermeneutical disagreement there. So it's probably not worth continuing to belabor the point. Sure. Well, and, you know, I, I, I respect that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think that the, um, you know, for just for all, all uh, putting all of our cards on the table, um, you know, Eric, I think that co you are certainly correct that there is a very particular issue that's going on here. Um, but I definitely read this much more like Greg does. I think that there's a, a, a principle, a universal principle that he is applying to that very particular thing, which applies then to the holy days. It applies to the food. It would also apply to anything. It applies to whatever, whatever uh, is with, you know, done without faith. Um, and so in this particular issue, those, those very particular issues are there. But again, that wasn't the main point. Uh, Hebrews eleven six talks about something similar, at least without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, the, 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 the greatest commandment um, that we are to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, these commandments that we are to do all things to the glory of God. Um, these are things that that is not some, you know, an, an atheist or an unbeliever um, or even a very religious person who's trying to, to earn their way to heaven. These are things that they might think, well, no, what I'm doing is good. On the surface, it's good. Everybody would evaluate it as good. The only person whose evaluation matters is God's. And so, you know, Greg, your point of, of, of you know, emphasizing that we all agree with, I think, uh, Erica, I mean, I thought you agree with this. I, I'll certainly agree with it, that God's standard isn't, isn't just qualitative. It's like, holy, W-H-O-L, it's wholly different. And, and so that holy, pure standard of goodness, um, whatever, wherever we're at in this spectrum of good, 
unless it is that perfect goodness of God, the, the final verse of Matthew 5, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And again, we might, we, we might interpret all these things slightly differently. I just have this pastoral concern where number one, I don't want to, I don't want to be telling an unbeliever that them providing for their family and not robbing the bank when they go in and, you know, being a generally, you know, good neighbor or whatever, that that makes them a, a bad person by human standards and that, that there's nothing good in that. Um, it is true when someone doesn't steal, that's good to some degree. Um, it's good for everybody. It's good for society when people don't steal from each other, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a better thing if, if people aren't just breaking into each other's houses and, and forcefully taking things from each other and stealing stuff from stores and all that stuff. That's, that's bad for everyone. But I also want to be very careful. Um, and I think that the Bible is clear that even when we do these good things, these objectively good things by that, that God's assessment of us out, outside of Christ is still that we are evil. And I, I think we, at, the, at least at the foundation, we all agree, we can't save ourselves. Nothing we do is meritorious enough to, to think that we're going to come before God and say, look at, you know, I helped at the soup kitchen every single day. Like I'm, I'm, I get to go to heaven, right? Apart from Christ. We all agree with that, I, I think. And so yes. um, uh, we were maybe moving towards, and I, I just want to press us forward then into the, to the next segment, because um, uh, the, the definition that you read from Lorraine Botner um, brought up this idea of, of inability, um, that basically the depravity of human beings makes them unable to respond to God in a positive way. So um, I think that if Lorraine Botner was here, he would, you know, he would affirm the, doctora- the, the doctrine that, um, you know, the rest of the tulip uh, doctrines and that God must um, do something special to change our nature so that, you know, giving us a gift of faith so that we can exercise that faith to believe. Um, if I'm incorrect on that, you know, Greg, you maybe know Lorraine Botner's writings better than I do. That's I, I the typical. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Okay. That's the typical reformed position that, that total depravity requires, um, you know, unconditional uh, election of God before eternity passed, limited atonement. Christ died specifically for these people, irresistible grace that they are irresistibly drawn and they will respond and then they'll persevere to the end, right? The whole thing kind of flows together. And it starts though that man is unable in this inability that in their depravity, they cannot respond to God unless God gives them the gift of faith, unless God um, causes them to respond. I would think that, Eric, you disagree with that, uh, at least. And so I, I, maybe let's turn it over to you and say, do you think that the doc, like your understanding of total depravity or radical depravity or sufficient depravity or whatever, you know, just depravity, I guess we'll <laughs> say, we'll, we'll leave out all the other, uh, the, the other qualifiers, that people who are inclined towards evil, that even if they do some things that are, you know, good by, by some standards, certainly not good enough to, to merit salvation in the sight of God. Um, are they unable to respond to the gospel apart from some separate work of God? Are they unable to repent and, and change their mind? Are they unable even to, um, to choose good? Can they only choose that which is evil? They're, they're wholly inclined to only evil all the time. How, how, how do you uh, interact with these, these aspects? Well, I um, there's there's a lot there, and the, I guess the first thing I would I would say, and I I kind of um, I, I was kind of wanting to cover just a, a few specific texts that I think are used to to support the idea that um, you know that unbelievers only do evil all the time. Uh, you mentioned I think it was you mentioned Genesis six. Um, you were alluding to. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. I thought you were alluding to maybe Isaiah 64, six, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I, I'll first start off by saying, I don't believe that 
um, these texts. Um, let me take Isaiah sixty four six just because it's the most. It's the most. Um, I don't know the, the one that just stands out in my mind more than others. Um, in that verse, it says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, and the question is, well, when he says our righteous acts, who is he talking about? Is he talking about all of mankind, which means everything that man does is just filthy in the sight of God? Well, I, I hardly think he means that. I think the context um, supports the idea that our righteous acts refers to the righteous acts of Israel. Israel's quote-unquote righteous acts were like filthy rags because Israel was basically going through the motions. Um, they were not serving God from the heart. They were not obeying God from the heart. They were Their obedience was mechanical at best, even if they were even attempting it. Um, and uh, so in that sense, uh, their righteous acts were, were like filthy rags. I've, I've even heard Christians say, many Christians say, even a Christian's righteous acts are like filthy rags because we're still, I mean, the Christian still has a sin nature and therefore everything the Christian does is, is just um, falls utterly short. And I'm not saying there's no truth to that at all, but I, I would really caution people against universalizing Isaiah 64, 6 and making it apply to all of mankind. Because when he says our righteous acts, I think he's clearly talking about the righteous acts of Israel. Israel's righteous acts are like filthy rags. And I wouldn't universalize it because in Revelation 19, verse, I think it's verse 8, the writer says the exact opposite thing. He says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here, rather than saying that their righteous acts are like filthy rags, he says the very opposite, that their righteous acts are like fine linen. Um, and can I, so can I, I just interject a question or, or yeah. maybe, maybe it's a comment. I don't know. We'll see where I go. Um, earlier in our conversation, we all agreed that because whatever deed we do, if it isn't at its core, perfect from perfect motivations, perfect, whatever, that it falls short and therefore to some extent, to some degree is evil. Why? I, I, and I'm not arguing that Isaiah wasn't talking to Israel, but why wouldn't we be able to say that outside of faith, outside of meeting the perfect holy standard of God, outside of being covered in the righteousness of Christ, every one of our righteous deeds is like a filthy rag. Like we, I feel like we've already agreed that, However exclusive Isaiah may have been at the time, it is absolutely true of all people everywhere today. Well, the, I guess the simple reason is because I think that the context of Isaiah 64, 6 um, is talking specifically about Israel. That would be the... The, uh, but the principle isn't universal. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by filthy rag. Um, and we know what that we know what that meant in that day. I'm not talking about the literal meaning, but let me give you an example. So um, Ahab, God cursed Ahab. Okay, that's in I think it's First Kings 21. God cursed Ahab. He said, uh, "I'm going to kill all of your descendants. Um, you are going to die. Your wife is going to die, and um, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you." And God made some very serious threats, and He did that through the prophet Isaiah. Now. 
um, after Isaiah left, Ahab humbled himself greatly before the Lord. And he humbled himself so greatly that God sent I, Isaiah, um, what did I say, Isaiah? I think it was Elijah. I'm sorry. If I said Isaiah, that was, that was a goof. Um, Elijah. He sent Elijah back to Ahab. And he said, God has seen your, the way that you've humbled yourself greatly before the Lord. And because you've done this, God is going to actually uh, postpone this, this judgment. He, God changed the judgment because he still judged Ahab. Ahab was still judged. But he, he changed the judgment to make it less severe because Ahab humbled himself so greatly before the Lord. Now, the question is, well, was Ahab, was he still, you know, tainted with sin? Of course he was. The guy, he didn't repent and become a Christian then. But he humbled himself greatly before the Lord, so much so that God lessened the severity of the judgment. So even, so God must have even thought that it was good. Um, so I, I guess my, my point is just simply that, yeah, was Ahab evil? Yes. Do people who give good gifts to their children, are, are they still evil? Um, if we're talking about unbelievers, yes, absolutely. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying that, you know, that an unbeliever can do something that is, you know, totally pure and without any, you know, sin at all or not tainted by sin at all. But I'm just saying that there, there, there must be the ability with an unbeliever to do some things, and in Ahab's case, to humble himself to the point where even God considered it good. And not meritorious, not like Ahab earned salvation through it. And we're not talking about that. I'm not saying anything like that. But God apparently thought it was good, good enough to to lessen the severity of the judgment. And I think the only weakness in your argument there, Eric, is the fact that what he did was fall on his knees before God. That that's the act, yes. right? Like yes. the deed yep. is repentance. Well, I don't think anybody's arguing that repentance isn't a good thing. Um, well, but he so, didn't repent so, but, but, and become a follower of God, though. He, uh, he, wasn't, did, he was not yeah, saved did, 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 his re, did his repentance continue? Well, no, I'm I, not saying it is. But, but, but to, to take the idea of at least that momentary repentance and call that a good thing and then say, ah, see, therefore other good things are, are just as good. No, I don't think so. Um, well, no, I really I'm not saying just as good. I actually said the opposite. I said, again, I said there, like Joe said, there's a spectrum. I don't, I don't think that. Again, I don't think that what, whatever, quote unquote, righteousness or goodness that an unbeliever is capable of, that's always going to be less than the righteousness that a Christian is capable of, because the Christian has a new heart, a new nature. He has the Holy Spirit. He he is empowered by God. Um, so I, I certainly would never say that Ahab's repentance was just as good as, you know, uh, I don't know, David's repentance or something like that. I mean, that would be crazy. Um, but, but, there, but again, I think it does, it, it would have to be considered good in some sense, in some, to some degree, I should say. It would have to be good to some degree. Otherwise, why would God have, have changed the severity of the judgment. That's the only point I'm trying to make. I think it was it, you know, was Ahab a good man? He was wretched as can be. Okay. But there was still something there in him that was capable of some 
even if it was a small amount, some amount of good. Um, Can I now, jump in here for a second? Is that yeah? No, so, so, sorry, go ahead. I thought you were. I thought you were done. Well, I just you know I just think that um, now does does that mean then? And to answer your question, Joe, and I know I, I went down a rabbit trail there for a moment, but to answer your question, does that? Mean, I think you chased. I think you chased Greg down. It is what. It was a Greg trick. Oh, okay. Maybe. I don't know. Did I? <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I don't just, think I'm so. Just, I'm just. Well, did I? Just well, let me ask you this. Did I answer your question, Greg? Or, or are you like, am I still? I just want to make sure I'm answering it, not not evading it, because I'm not trying to. Um, you've answered it to my satisfaction. I, I know that's all that stand. matters. I know. I know where you stand, brother. Okay. Way over so, there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and the nose bleeds. Um, <laughs> so With uh, the sinners and reprobate. <laughs> Well, but again, I am, I am certainly not saying that any unbeliever can do anything to merit salvation. I'm not saying any sinner can, you know, earn it's funny. heaven. It, it, it's funny. Um, we keep talking, and I don't think we do it incorrectly. We keep talking about meriting salvation, and Lorraine Botner's definition uses the same thing. It's funny because if you, the fact that we're talking about needing salvation at all, I mean, it, pre it assumes that we're fallen and, and need salvation, right? So, yes. you know, uh, we're almost putting the cart before the horse when we talk about meriting salvation. Well, we, if if we were good, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need salvation in the first place. So meriting salvation would be out of the conversation. Yes, it's almost like an oxymoron. Saying meriting yeah. salvation is almost almost yeah. like an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. I, I Would you just saying. call me? No, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, not, not you. Not you guys. You guys are calling me all these names today. Um, no, I, I, uh, so Eric, I want to affirm, uh, something that you said uh, a few minutes ago. Um, certainly I would agree with you and disagree with anybody who would disagree with revelation 19, eight and, and thinks that, um, even as Christians that we can do nothing that's good. I think that that is, a um, uh, thinking back to the, the conversation you and I had, um, when Greg wasn't able to be with us that, uh, the, when we talked kind of about sanctification and, and holiness, getting back to some of those themes. Um, I believe that many people, especially in the modern day, do not understand really what the grace of God actually is. And the fact that we, we need salvation that we're just talking about right now, when we are saved, we become saints. Now, it's not because we're, we're better, but it's because now in Christ, we can do righteous things, things that are truly pleasing to God. And so Revelation 19.8 certainly uh, acknowledges that. So I don't think that apart from Christ, I can do anything good. Um, but as I abide in Christ, he is the branch, or he's the vine, I'm the branch, that as I abide in him, the Holy Spirit and the grace of God um, enables me to then bring forth fruit that is actually pleasing in God's sight. I think that that's a possibility. I think going back to Isaiah, and I do differ from you here, um, not that I disagree that Isaiah is specifically speaking to Jews, of course, I think that that is accurate, your, your assessment is correct. But I think that by choosing the nation of Israel, God expected them. Isaiah earlier on talks about that. He, he, God said, I made this to be my, my choice garden that would produce fruit. Um, and they aren't. And when Isaiah makes this claim, says all of us have become like one who is unclean. Um, if that's true for them, it's especially true of the Gentiles. I mean, he already viewed the Gentiles as unclean. They're, they're of course unclean. So er, they would have expected, of course, everybody else is doing this, but even us now. Even we have become like one who is unclean. Even we who think that we're being righteous have become unclean. And so um, I, I don't think that that by, by narrowing the scope to realizing that he's talking to Jews, I don't think that excludes anybody else. Yeah. Um, I think, it, in fact, if it's true of them, it's even more so true 
of the, the nations that were surrounding. And so, you know, Romans chapter three is something that I, I don't know that we have maybe the, the, the time or the interest really to, to go round and round, but it does seem that as Paul is shutting up the whole world under sin, you know, Gentiles are, are guilty of sin. Jews are perhaps even worse guilty of sin because they have the law and yet they still do the same things. And then there in chapter three, he says, you know, and, and I think it's in verse what, eight, uh, verse nine, excuse me, he says, what then are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. And then he goes on, you know, there's none righteous, no, not even one. And so this gets us back to the same thing. Can, can, can unrighteous people who are unclean in the sight of God, can they, can they do anything that is quote unquote good as we would assess it? We all agree, you know, even, even, even evil people can give good gifts to their, their children. But we do presuppose that we need salvation. I want to get back to the Ahab thing because there was a, an element in there that was really, that was what we were talking about, is the, the inability. Um, I view Ahab as an unbeliever. Eric, you seem to view Ahab as an unbeliever. Greg, yes. would you think that King Ahab is an unbeliever? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we make then of his, he did seem to have, although it wasn't maybe a full-blown repentance, he did have some ability to respond, you know, the prophet comes, Elijah comes and, and rebukes him, and he responded. He humbled himself before God. Um, what do we make of that? that? That's a very, I think, a significant text for the, the main question. I know we kind of did run off on a couple of different bunny trails, but, but is that a text that would demonstrate that even fallen man, even depraved man, even unregenerate, sinful man does have an ability to respond to God in some way, or does his lack of full repentance prove that it was still inadequate? I mean, it seems like God was pleased in some way. Eric, you're, the way that you're interpreting it, it seems fair to me. God lessened the judgment. So he seemed to be pleased in some way with the response. Um, Greg, how do you view that? I mean, is this, is this a text that would say that, that even in their fallen nature that somehow, because I still don't think Ahab's going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Like, I don't think that this was, Neither do he I. responded, he responded to God in, in some way that wasn't wholly inclined to evil, he, he did, like God rebuked him and he agreed and humbled himself and God was seemingly pleased with that. What, what do you make of that or, or would you interpret that differently? Yeah, um, I guess I, I for sure don't, I don't understand how to quantify an unregenerate person completely unable to respond to God. Like I, I, don't, how, I don't understand how we could say um, anybody goes a day unable to respond. What, what do we mean by respond? So, you know, I, I see, I see Ahab's repentance as, as a temporary, uh, in, uh, a broken repentance. So did, so did Ahab respond to, uh, to God, to some limited ineffective sense? Well, well, sure. But we have a, we have the history of the world to say that, Look, you know, to whatever degree um, people do respond, they they don't respond well enough, or they don't respond in the proper way. And I think we could even go to Romans one and look at, you know, um, here you have people that that are so opposed that God gives them over to greater and greater depravity. But that that doesn't presume that there was no response ever at all. Um, so yeah, I, I don't understand the argument um, that says completely unable to respond to. I, I don't, um, yeah. Yeah, what, what would that even mean? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to quantify that in, in a satisfactory way in my own mind. 
Can I, I'm going to read a couple of quotes. I sent, you know, I sent these over to you guys uh, in advance from a guy that I really like. I, I love Paul Washer. I love listening to Paul Washer preach. Um, and this is from uh, his, uh, his book. Um, uh, oh, what's the title of it? Uh, the Truth it's About Man. Truth About Man. Yeah. yeah, The Truth About Man, which is, I think, a, a good workbook. Um, you know, we've, we've used it at our local church, and um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of great stuff in there. I don't agree with every single point, um, but he at least articulates what that might mean. Um, so uh, on, in his uh, book on page uh, 23, he's got this study help after reading a verse. Um, he writes this, it is important to understand that man is not a victim who is separated from God because of some unavoidable ignorance that he cannot help. Man's ignorance is self-imposed. He is hostile towards God and does not want to know him or his will. Man is ignorant of spiritual things because he closes his eyes and refuses to look at God. He covers his ears and refuses to listen. Now, on the next uh, study help down on the same page, it says, in hardening his heart against God, fallen man becomes callous to all spiritual truth and virtue. He then voluntarily gives himself over to the very evil that God opposes. Uh, on page 24, he, uses, he has another study help. Again, these are his words. I, this is all in the context of he's quoting verses that he, he thinks, but I, I want you to hear his words and what he's, how he's explaining it. Um, he talks about a statue of stone is inanimate and is unresponsive to any sort of stimulus. One can, uh, one can pinch, poke, or prod a statue, and yet it will not respond. In the same way, the heart of fallen man will not respond to divine stimuli. It is dead as a stone to God. Um, one more quick quote. Uh, this is on page 28. Um, uh, saying in part, saying that the... the, the uh, Spiritually dead and morally corrupt man has responded to this revelation by closing his eyes and covering his ears. He, quote unquote, cannot know the truth because he hates the truth and seeks to repress it. He hates the truth because it is God's truth and it speaks against him. Therefore, he cannot bear it. Now, some of these things, if taken ungraciously, um, do seem to be contradictory. Am I like a stone? Am I like a statue? Am I like a corpse that cannot respond in any way? Or am I like someone who can only respond in one way? I'm a slave to respond by my nature to hate what God says and kind of getting back to something that you said you reject, Eric, at the beginning, that man is born as a hater of God. Um, Ahab does seem like he was a hater of God. And yet, in some instances, he responded to the prophecies of God through the prophet Elijah, exactly as this is saying, closing his eyes, closing his ears, saying, I hate that. I don't want to do anything. I'm doing the opposite. But then he seemingly responded in a way that was pleasing in God's sight by humbling himself. And so inability, at least on some ends of the spectrum, um, would say that they are completely incapable of doing what God says, or if they have a capability, it is only doing the opposite of what God says. God says, don't steal. And they say, I'm going to steal. God says, don't covet. They say, I'm coveting more. God says, don't murder. They say, I'm killing, you know, I'm, I'm murdering. Um, and uh, so their, in, their ability to respond in hostility because they're haters of God, is an inability then to respond in a way of, of humility and, and acceptance. Um, that's how it's defined, at least on one end of the spectrum. It doesn't sound like you guys, either of you agree with that. Eric, I think you, I mean, very explicitly stated outside. Greg, does that help? You said you don't know what that would look like. That's at least how one, yeah, one yeah. author would, would state it. Yeah, I, I believe that's going beyond the text. Um, I, I, I understand the inclination, and God bless Paul Washer and and his ministry he, he he is immensely helpful but my favorite living preacher uh 
with no 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 smarm or anything else. I love he, I, I love yeah, listening to Paul. McCartney. He's top three without any question. Um, I just don't know that I could uh, express and affirm those ideas while holding all of the uh, all of the text of scripture in the balance. So let me ask a different: How would you then define like what? Do you think man is on a, in this st- state of condition, as you've described it, that we are, you know, every aspect of our person is, is affected by sin to some degree. Uh, are we capable of responding to God? And, and if so, how, or are we unable? Because well, Lorraine Botner, that definition you read, he, he talks yeah. about inability. Do we have an ability? Well, my first question would be, what do we mean by respond? I don't believe any man can come to the father unless he's called. Um, but does that mean that that no man, uh, by by the word of God, as it affects his conscience, can do right? Th- no, I've already I've already affirmed that that people can do good deeds. Do I believe that there can be temporary repentance? Do I believe that that someone can can for a season um, seem to submit themselves to God only to to be apostate? Well, of course, I have to believe that. I've already. I've, we've argued that in in the past. So, what do we mean by respond? Do I, uh, if we're talking about, can somebody be born again of the Spirit without the prompting, without the the, the prior work of God? No, I don't believe that. But do our when we say respond, do we mean do a good thing, do a temporary thing? Uh, no, I, I think I think that outside of being redeemed and born again, I, I believe sinful man can do some of those things. That's fair. Eric, what do you, what, what say you? Um, this is a really, it's a really complicated um, question in one sense, because the, the Bible is, uh, it's, well, it, you know, the Bible is not as explicit about this as some people might think. Um, now, Jesus did say in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. It sounds on the surface as if Jesus is saying that this drawing is necessary um, in order for someone to come to Christ. Uh, there's um, there's Romans 1.16 where Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It sounds as if he's saying that there is a power that comes from the gospel. Amen. That, that you know, that I would say enables um, someone to believe and become a Christian. Uh, so... It, there's little, there's hints here and there that that yes God has to make the first move in order for someone to embrace the gospel. I think that's I would say um, as far as embracing the gospel goes, I think that's um, that's the case. I want to. Um, what do you mean by I want I, I, I just want to ask a clarifying question. What do you can can you flesh out what you mean by? embracing the gospel what is that like putting saving faith in the gospel okay that's that's how i would say it okay i want to i've been so anxious i've been sitting here stirring in my seat going oh i'm going to cover certain verses um and i and we have covered verses so we i'm not saying we haven't but there's certain verses i i want to touch on very briefly and this plays right into what you just asked you about can can men uh can men choose the gospel can they choose to believe um, without God, uh, without God's help, or do they do they need help, or you know what is their what is their condition? And some people have claimed, well, no, man is wholly to use that word again, wholly unable 
to even approach God because he is man is so um sinful and he just he hates God and he's born so depraved. What do you mean by approach? Nothing to do with God. What do you mean by approach? Seek God in any way. Seek God in any way that's 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 good. Um, you know, he he might be able to shake a fist at God, but uh, this is how they would. I'm, I'm speaking from their their perspective. That's that's not mine. In Romans one eighteen through thirty two has to be one of the key passages that's used to support the idea that everyone's born uh, just totally in total rebellion against God. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God at all. And I, I think there's several reasons why this interpretation just does not work. It's, it's impossible, I even believe, to come to this conclusion from the context. So I would just say, um, to summarize this, before I get into the individual reasons, I think, it's, I think Romans 1, 18 through 32, first of all, is not talking about the birth condition of people. And second, it's not talking about literally every single unbeliever without exception. And I believe these things for, uh, I think I have six reasons here. The first reason is while verse 18 speaks of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, it never says that all men without exception do this, and nor is there any evidence in the passage to support that. And I would even go so far as to say, if you read chapter 2, um, there seem to be exceptions uh, that, are, that are mentioned there. The second reason is, if you read verses 19 and 20, these men, through natural revelation and conscience, had the ability to know God. They, they could have um, followed this revelation and at least began to seek God. So they weren't in some uh, hopeless state uh, where they couldn't seek God. And, and Well, when you, you, know, when you say any... know God, do you mean acknowledge that there is a God or no God that based upon natural revelation and their conscience that they could know God experientially. Cause when I, when I read this, I don't see it saying what I think I hear you saying simply that, that natural revelation and our conscience makes it clear that there is a creator, that there is a creator God, not necessarily that you can know that creator God. I, I'm not claiming that that this is saying that um, natural revelation in itself is sufficient to, to have a relationship with God. No, I'm not saying that. Um, but, I, but I believe, and I'll get to this in a minute, I believe that natural revelation and conscience are enough to, um, to, to allow somebody to begin seeking to know God. Uh, that, that, I, that I do believe. And I'll get to that in a minute because I think that that ties into Romans chapter um, another reason, the words became and darkened in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1 suggests that these people reached this level of depravity over time. They became this way. They were darkened over time. In other words, Paul's not describing the birth condition of people. Uh, number 4, verse 22 says that they became fools, implying that they, they weren't always Fools, or they weren't, at least they weren't this foolish. Uh, they became more foolish over time by, by continually rejecting this revelation. Uh, reason number five, according to verses 26 and 27, these men practiced homosexuality. 
And because not all unbelievers practice homosexuality, the passage can't be referring to all men without exception. And reason number six, uh, verse 28 says that God gave them over to a depraved mind because they no longer acknowledged him. And this means that they became this depraved after turning away from God or after turning away from this revelation that God gave them through nature and conscience. So I do not believe that Romans 1, 18 through 32 is describing the birth condition of of people, and I also don't believe it's even referring to every unbeliever without exception. I think this is Paul is is basically describing uh, the way that you know many uh, pagan Gentiles were, the way that many of them lived. Um, so, but again, he's not he's not speaking universally, and he's not describing a birth condition. Well, I I definitely would agree with you that. Um... That these later giving over, um, so, you know, God gave them over this, He gave them over to that, he gave them over to degrading passions. Um, for, for sure, I I definitely see this a whether you call it a climbing into depravity or a slide into depravity um, as as God judges them. Um, I, I have I have no problem. Actually, I would completely affirm that's what's happening in in the latter half of eighteen through twenty four, um, and I would even agree that. Um, that men and women, uh, mankind, definitely grow un um, undiverted by the grace of God. I would agree that men grow in their foolish speculations and and their um, their denying of God. But you know, for the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, um, I'd have no problem arguing that um, my two-year-old son, eighteen-month-year-old son, eighteen-month, um, doesn't suppress the truth of God with within his own mind to the degree that my ten-year-old can or has the ability to. Um, so while I agree that this is specifically talking about people. As they get worse, I don't think it's untrue. As we've discussed before, nobody had to teach um, my 18-month-year-old to want his own way and to, in essence, what we might say, idolize himself, set himself up as God. So just because he hasn't gotten as bad as he is doesn't mean that he's not on that trajectory outside of the grace of God intervening in his life. Well, I, I, again, I, I want to make it very clear. I, I do not believe that men are born good. That's obviously not true. And I don't believe that men are even born neutral. I believe they're born into sin. I believe they have a sinful inclination from birth. I do believe that. Um, I just, and it sounds like you agree too, Greg. I, I, I don't believe you can make the case that Romans 1, 18 through 32, is describing all men without exception. And describing well, not all condition. men are homosexual. For Right. Nobody is making that, that, that argument, sure. but, yeah. but, but yeah, again, um, I, I see him generalizing what he sees as a, as a, um, as a norm for unbelievers. He's, he's showing how that, um, rejection of God often plays itself out in time. Yeah, and I, I, I'm okay with that. I think especially among pagan nations, um, 
because there's because there's I mean I pagan, guess every unbeliever pagan meaning those who reject God. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I mean, I I, th- I think that I'm going to be careful how I say this because again I don't I don't want people to get the wrong idea because uh, it seems like my view is one that I have to be really cautious when I'm explaining it because some people might think, well, boy, he he thinks unbelievers are are just good. I don't. Believe me, I do not. I do not think that. I don't believe they're good. I just believe that they're. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was Paul Washer who said that unbelievers, um, while they while they the image of God in them has been. I'm not sure how you put it, disfigured or um, uh, damaged or I don't know. I don't think he used the word damage, but in other words, it's it's been marred. It's definitely been marred. The image is not completely gone, though. And that's the consistent teaching of the New Testament. Um, James mentions, you know, don't you don't curse men. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And he sounds like he's speaking just of men generally. Um, men still, even though the image is marred, they're still made in the image of God. There's, I believe there's still some capacity there for good. Now that, but that brings me to the next thing because. Some might think, well, no, you're, you're, you got to be wrong, because in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes it clear nobody does good, not even one. So doesn't that exclude the possibility that, that an unbeliever could do some amount of good? I don't believe it does. I think if you read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18 very carefully, and you compare those verses with other verses in Romans and outside of Romans, I think... Uh, I don't think Romans three is is uh, proving that no unbeliever can ever do anything good to any degree under any circumstances. And the reason I say this is because as I read this, no single verse quoted by Paul applies to all men without exception. And I want to give you an example. But, hold on, but but haven't we already agreed that regardless of how how good something is? That if you are doing it outside of the glory of God and the submission to his will, it doesn't meet the qualification for good. So would it, would we ever say that an unbeliever is acting for at their most base motiva- basic motivations for the glory of God and the submission to his will? So, so again, I'm going to come back to if they don't meet that standard, it falls short of the standard and therefore it's not good. Well, again, like we talked about before, I think good is a spectrum. I, I don't. I don't think. I, I think don't there's think a that, standard, and then yes, you you have to meet the standard of perfection, and then everything else. You could call it degrees of good, or you can call it degrees of evil, right? Like wh- whichever side of the, whichever, however you want to paint the picture, something could be less evil or more evil. But it's only really good once you've crossed that threshold into the into perfection. I guess. Okay, that's let me give you that. Okay, let me. That's that's fair. Let me give you a specific example, though, to make make my point. Okay, so in Romans chapter three, this is uh, starting at verse ten, and he's proving in verses ten through eighteen that all men, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. Okay, he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Okay, now, if, if you 
take those verses to mean that there is not a single person, um, and we're speaking of both Jews and Gentiles, no one does good. Uh, and he specifically says, there's no one who seeks God. Okay. If, if you universalize it, that's it, it makes it sound as if he's he's saying there's no one no unbeliever can do any amount of good um and and one of the way one one thing that that means is that they can't seek God because he includes that he says there's no there's, there's no one who does there's no one righteous not even one no one understands no one who seeks God okay now Paul wrote Paul quoted Psalm 14 these are these are this is a quote from Psalm 14. Okay, I believe it's a mistake to to assume that when Paul quotes these verses, he means every individual verse universally applies to every single man without exception. I think that's a mistake, and that, and if Paul was teaching that, he contradicted his own self, because in Acts chapter seventeen, Paul's preaching. I think this is at Mars Hill, if I remember right. In Acts seventeen. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says this. It says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why did he do this? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yeah. Uh, now, so so looking at the looking at the verb for seek there, um, outline of biblical usage, to seek out, to search for, to investigate, to scrutinize, um, to beg, to crave, uh, to demand back or to require. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to say we disagree. I don't believe that any unbeliever outside of the grace of God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe they're out there begging and craving for God. Now, you as said, he, as you he's revealed one, himself in Scripture. Now, you said one thing that I never said. I, I, said I'm not saying you said it. I'm saying perhaps we disagree. Well, you said that you talked about without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, I never, I, I never said anything about not being prompted by the Spirit. My point is just simply this. In Romans 3, Paul says, he, he quotes Psalm 14, and he says, and he makes it sound as if, and I know some people interpret it this way, no, nobody prior to regeneration, and this is how I've heard people, um, some from the reformed camp, reformed camp, this is how they've explained it. I'm not saying all of them explained it this way, but this is how I've heard them explain it. You can't seek God unless you are first regenerated, unless God is, is um, you know, has already effectually called you. Okay. And they, they quote Romans 3, and they say, look, Paul said no one seeks God. This is a quote from Romans 14. I think there's several reasons why, why uh, Psalm 14 can't possibly be referring to all men without exception. And one of those reasons, like I just, I, I just read in, in uh, Acts 17, 26 and 27, Paul says that they can see God. Now, he doesn't say exactly how they do, but he says God spread these nations out. He determined their boundaries of habitation, where they would live. And he says, so that, or that they would seek God. In other words, God arranged their, I don't know, nations in such a way that would cause them to seek God. That's, that's what it sounds as if Paul's saying there. But the main point I'm making is, 
they can seek God prior to regeneration. Okay, they don't, they don't need to be regenerated first before they can seek God, because Paul says that they may seek him and find him. The seeking leads to the finding. And it, it sounds like, I mean, on the surface, it sounds like what Paul's saying there in Acts 17 is unbelievers, um, unregenerate men are capable of seeking God. So this is my main point as I'm as I'm I'm using this verse to make sense of Romans 3, 9 through 18. No single verse applies to all men without exception. Uh, but the individual verses in this section, uh, if you take them collectively, they make the point that all men are under sin. And that's the only point that Paul, I think, is trying to make here. Romans 3, 9 says all men are under sin. And he proves that by quoting several um, Old Testament verses in verses 10 through 18. So I, I don't believe that we can take the verse from, uh, from Psalm 14 and say, look, nobody prior to effectual calling, prior to regeneration, nobody can seek God. That's a misuse of, the, of that verse. I don't, think it, I don't think David in Psalm 14 meant for his readers to, to think that he was talking literally about all men without exception. David was seeking God when he wrote that. So it, it, can't, it, can't, be, it can't be that universal, I don't think. But it, again, if you take the verses collectively in Romans 3, 9 through 18, collectively they make the case that all men are under sin. But no individual verse there, I think, can be applied to all men uh, without exception. So that, that's how I understand uh, Romans 3, and it leads to the conclusion in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They have. Uh, the, the conclusion is the same. But uh, So I agree with, the, with the, the people in the Reformed camp when they say all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I, I couldn't agree more. We, we definitely have. But how we get to that conclusion from Romans 3, I get there a different way than they do. So that, that's, that's how I understand Romans 3. Some would, would disagree, but I think you have to interpret that, interpret that way without, uh, I, no, I think you're not going to contradict yourself. I, I, I think you're deconstructing the text a little, um, especially when you back up to verse 9. Um, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, now maybe in your understanding you'd say, well, He's not talking about Americans because he's just talking about Jews and Greeks. But I, I think he's talking about all men without exception so, there. So, okay. Yes. All, so, ver, hold on. Verse 9 is part of the same sentence as verse 10. And I'll read again. Not at all. For we have charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Now, again, we're still in the same sentence here, and you're saying that you think that the that verse nine acknowledges all people universally, but verse ten is saying saying not. So, what I would say is there must is hold, hold, on, hold on, hold on, take okay, go ahead. This is what I'm saying. The conclusion is the same: all men are under sin; all men have fallen short of the glory of God. I agree with that. But if, if, you, if you say that the, the way you prove that is by applying every individual verse in Romans 10 through 18, 
uh, to every individual on earth. I don't think you can do that. I think it's, I think it's gymnastics to say that verse nine, which is part of the same same sentence as verse 10, that verse nine is all men everywhere, but verse 10 isn't, I think it's hermeneutical gymnastics. I don't think it is. I, because I think in in Romans in in, in Romans three, uh, 10 and 11, Again, in that section, Paul says, no man seeks God. But then Paul himself said, men can seek God. And there's examples of them seeking God prior to regeneration. So if in, in Romans chapter 3, if Paul is saying that— I agree if, it's if, an if, apparent if Paul, contradiction, but I don't think in reality it, it is a contradiction. But yet I, I think it's, that I don't think verse it's a 9 and 10 and all 11 of you are, understand, all, are all speaking universally of all men. I, I don't think they could. I don't think okay. they can be. So um, we, we've, we've kind of uh, started answering our last main question that we were trying to ask about whether or not people can become more depraved. And I think at least on that, we all agree that none of us are as depraved as we possibly could be, that we're all capable of more evil than we do, that we, there is some sort of, I like Greg, you said, whether you're ascending or descending, there's some, <laughs> some sort of uh, uh, movement that can go in that direction. Um, one, one technical matter, um, and I, I don't think it really changes the point that you're making necessarily, Eric, but I want to kind of throw, maybe this will be the last thing that we'll discuss, at least for this episode. Obviously, this has been discussed for a long, long time. We could go round and round and round, but uh, we're nearing the end of our, of our kind of allotted time for today. Um, although it is translated the same in English, uh, the, the verb there in Romans 3, quoting from Psalm 14, is not exactly the same as the verb in Acts 17. It is exactly the same as the verb in Acts 15. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to read this verse. Um, and then of course, Acts 17 kind of follows in this, uh, vein, but, uh, in Acts 15, I'll start at verse 13. It says, after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles, a people for his name. Uh, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So there is, that's the exact same seek uh, Greek word. It's a, it's a related word, but it is just for anybody who's, you know, wants to be very, very technical. Although it's the same English word seek in both Acts 17 and Romans three is a slightly different Greek word. It seems though that backing up to Acts 15, um, that getting back to kind of the point, I think we all agree. None of us could save ourselves. God has to take the first step. Uh, when we, we think of uh, a statement like, uh, I can't remember which one of you quoted it. Maybe it was you, Greg. John 6, that uh, Jesus said, no, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Maybe it was you, Eric. I, I can't remember. Maybe you both said it. Um, we agree with that. The, what that text doesn't say is who the Father does and doesn't draw. That's where a lot of the disagreement is, is who, who is drawn. Of course, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Okay, well, does that mean, does that mean all men or, or, or does it not? Well, we get to the purpose of God and election. Why did he choose, um, you know, the, the nation of Israel? Why did he choose the house of David? Why did he make these promises? Well, so that he would leave uh, a, a testimony of himself. And so God's then saying here as they're disputing or arguing or, or, wrestling through this uh, realization that Gentiles are coming into the church by believing in the Messiah. Um, now they're having this council in Jerusalem, uh, the you know, quote unquote Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And they're saying, listen, what the prophets always said that God was going to restore the house of David 
so that by doing this, that people from other nations would seek the Lord. And so, you know, the, the question remains, can we seek God on our own without God doing something? Um, well, maybe not. And maybe that is what Psalm 14 is saying. Even as, as uh, David is writing that, of course, he's a man seeking the Lord, but he looks around and says, it doesn't seem like maybe anybody else is. At the same time, we see that God is working so that people can seek him. And so the, the question that kind of remains, uh, um, I don't know, different theologians as I read, they like to give different qualifications for what grace is, prevenient grace, effectual grace, irresistible grace. But the Bible consistently just uses the word grace. And I think sometimes we divide ourselves amongst one another by trying to be so overly technical and overly specified. I think that all of us would agree. Maybe you guys wouldn't. Um, but but I, I want to at least throw this one last kind of thought out before we begin to wind this down. Um, I think we all agree. We've all sinned. Some have sinned more than others. You know, we could be worse than we are, but we've all sinned. We need a savior. That's true for both Jew and for Gentile. Everybody needs a savior. The only savior is Jesus Christ. Uh, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the perfect righteousness that's required. He overcame death. He overcame sin. He overcame hell. We got to trust in him. If we trust in him, um, I, I believe that we are transferred out of darkness into marvelous light. I think you guys fully agree with all these things. Now we can actually bear fruit that is pleasing in the sight of God. We can do all these things through him who strengthens us. You know, we actually can do that which is good um, because of the power of God dwelling in us. And we would not be able to come to know God on our own. We would not be able to seek God on our own. We would not be able to know Jesus Christ had he not revealed himself, and given, you know, given the Bible and through the nation of Israel, like all of these things. And, and yet God, he did that. He did these things and he, did, he does make himself. He's, he's revealed himself in some general way in what he's made, his invisible attributes, one, his power, his wisdom, his, his might. These are obvious. Um, people suppress that. He's made himself known more clearly. Uh, Book of Hebrews starts that way, right? God in, in previous ways spoke in many ways and in many portions, but now he's spoken through his son. So Jesus Christ comes and reveals us. And so at the end of it, I think we all agree we need a savior. We can't know God on our own. God has to take the first step. And he at least has for some, I think that's where the real rub comes in is, is then, you know, the, the, the division still between Armenians and Calvinists is who is God taking that step for? Who is God drawing? Who is God? Um, who did Christ die for? And that's a discussion for another day. But, but I think we all agree that we need God to make the first step. I, I would say God has taken that first step. He, he chose the nation of Israel. He gave them the law. He fulfilled his promises. Not, not one promise that he made to them failed. He brought forth the Messiah exactly as, as he promised. He demonstrated with power that Jesus is the son of God by raising him from the dead and fulfillment of the scriptures. And now God has granted this repentance that we who are Gentiles, that we might seek him too. We've, we've heard this and the power that is in the gospel at the very least, whether it's prevenient grace or effectual grace or irresistible, it's the grace of God has, has caused us to give us something and we've responded and, and then we should pr proclaim that gospel to other people. Is all this stuff that I'm saying, do you guys disagree with this? Is there something you would state differently or do we at least agree on that foundation that God has given us enough as we make this declaration, we should expect that people can respond. And I guess then we leave it to God to, to sort out, you know, what, what is the nature of that response? Do they truly mean it from the heart and all that other stuff? That's not up to us to decide, but um, is there anything that I'm saying in that kind of more broad framework that you would disagree with or, um, or that you would state differently kind of as we begin to move this episode toward a conclusion. No, I think, I mean, there's always further steps to take, but, but that broad brush. Yeah. 
I, I definitely affirm all that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I believe that the grace of God in whatever form that takes is necessary to bring men to God. Um, I think in Acts 17, when he says, when he talks about seeking God, um, it's a seeking God to find him hmm. is the way Paul describes it. Um, they, they can seek and they can find, not apart from the grace of God, but because of the grace of God. Uh, it says in John 1, 9 that Christ has uh, Christ gives light to all men or enlightens all men in some sense. Um, Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, uh, through nature and conscience, all men can know that there's a God and even know something about his nature uh, because his law is written on their heart. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that God um, does have to make the first move in order for man to seek him and in order for man to, to embrace the gospel. Without the grace of God, man can't do that. And, um, and yeah, so I, I think uh, no, no one can get saved and go, wow, I did this all on my own. No, no, you can't. Yeah, amen. Um, yeah, without venturing into the, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. Um, I, I just don't like that kind of language. But um, it is evident, um, just, again, we'll appeal to natural revelation or the observation of history. It is clear that man seeks for a God. Many men are satisfied with with what they find in themselves as they look in the mirror, and you know I'm God, and I can choose truth and whatnot. Um, others have have found more, uh, I guess, what I'll call brutal gods and other things. Um, but, but yeah, the, the the satisfaction and the eager seeking after Yahweh and His Son, the Lord Jesus, um, it 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 is it is it is different than. It, it is on a, I believe it takes a grace. And again, I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever understood the provenient and efficient. I, I don't know. I, I'm with you, Joe. I'll just take the grace. Um, so the eager seeking after Christ, I think is quite different uh, than, than our natural inclination to seek after a God. So as we begin to, uh, again, close this, I want to just summarize the three main points that we hit and see if, uh, if we can at least state our agreement. The first thing is, is that we all agree that uh, every human being without exception um, is polluted by sin and that that sin pollutes us really to, to everything that we are, our minds, our emotions, our will, our body, everything um, as a result of the fall that happened with Adam, uh, we are all polluted with sin. We all affirm that? Amen. Yep. Yes. The second thing is that uh, apart from God, um, we never could remedy this problem by ourselves. God needs to uh, provide the solution and we need to, uh, in some sense, receive the solution that God has made. Because this is not a problem that although we made the problem, it's not a problem that we could fix. We agree with that? Amen. Yep. Amen. And then thirdly, when we talk about this pollution, we're not saying that we are as possibly depraved as we could be, that there is actually a descent. And Romans 1 seems to very clearly describe that there is a path. I would say descends, but you know, maybe we're elevating the <laughs> hill of pollution, but, but we're descending into the depths of depravity that even when we say totally depraved, quote unquote, or radically depraved, quote unquote, that there is still, there, is, there are depths of depravity um, that we could even sometimes surprise ourselves of thoughts that we have. We're like, whoa, I didn't even think I could think something as dark as that, or, or we might do something, whoa, 
we are people who are capable of doing even worse things than we realize. And so um, I, I think we all agree on that. Like, although this, this pollution is here, we're not as depraved at like there, that we could be worse. We could do worse things. There are degrees. We, we all agree on that. That third yes, point. For sure. Yes. Fair enough. So there, there obviously is some other disagreement and, you know, I, I do look forward to um, getting into some of the other related doctrines of this. Um, you know, maybe we've isolated or separated ourselves from maybe the further ends of the, the typical spectrum of Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, but I, I'm, I'm comfortable with kind of ending it there. Was there anything else that you guys were hoping that we would talk about in this episode that we did not discuss that you'd like to do as kind of some, some concluding matters before we uh, say goodbye for, uh, for this episode? I don't think so. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. Genesis 6, 5, Genesis 8, 21, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, Jeremiah 13, 3. Um, you gonna read all Ephesians those to us? Two, one. Uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, We're not gonna get, be able to cover those today. Um, we're not gonna get. But it. no. But there's um, there's so much to this, and it, and and like you said in the beginning, Joe, this is so nuanced. We have to be so careful with how we explain ourselves, and that's why I I, I came into this discussion uh, trying very carefully to watch what I say and how I say it because my my view can be very easily misunderstood and. Um, I'm not a Pelagian, and uh, actually Pelagius wasn't either, but that's a topic for a different time. <laughs> um, so we'll get into that later. Fair enough. Well, um, you know, the the as we uh, end for today, if you're still watching this and got some value from it, uh, you know, don't forget to click that thumbs up button and subscribe to the channel if you're not already subscribed and all the other YouTube uh, business and nonsense. But uh, of course, if you have thoughts, feel free to let us know uh, down in the comments. Uh, but the last thing I guess I would leave us with is this, is the, the reality that the world is constantly telling us that we should follow our heart. And God in his goodness and kindness tells us that we should not, that following our heart actually leads to destruction. When we do what is right in our own eyes, uh, we're, we're literally doing exactly what everyone else does. And that is the broad path that leads to destruction. And so in love, God has called us to repent and turn to him to walk in that which is truly life. And when we respond to him uh, and we put our trust in Christ, then he will call us to walk in newness of life that really doesn't make sense. Uh, and we end up doing things that maybe, uh, you know, we wouldn't have done otherwise. And uh, God is pleased when we trust in him and do those things, that which is truly good. And he's going to call us to love more radically than the world does. He's going to call us to be more generous, to be more sacrificial, to be uh, more kind, to be more forgiving. And to be more holy, he's going to call us to uh, to agree with him that what he calls wicked, we should not call good, and what he calls good, we should not call evil. And so in, in all of these things, we can't really trust our heart. We can't trust our emotions. We can't trust our reasoning. That's what this doctrine, at least at the very base of it, tells us. But we can trust God who demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And truly, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life. For his friends. And so I hope that uh, you were encouraged by this conversation, that you're encouraged to trust more in God's faithfulness. And until we see you again, get equipped, obey your king, and glorify your God.